Um, but I'm so thankful to be here with you this morning. Uh, Bill and I have been good buddies now for, for a long time. Um, and since I've known Bill, he has had two passions, to preach the Word of God and to pastor in the Lord's Church. And it's an awesome opportunity to be here today and to see God using him in those passions uh, coming to fruition here uh, at, at uh, LifeSpring Church. Uh, he's a great preacher, uh, a great pastor. I learn a lot from him in both areas. I listen to his sermons all the time. Um, but more importantly, he's a great man. He loves the Lord. And uh, he loves his, this church, and he loves his family well. Uh, and Sarah, who's not here today, so I'm going to say a few things. <laughs> you don't tape this, do you? Oh, okay, we're good, okay. You know, I love Sarah like a sister. And I'm more like a little annoying brother to her. Um, but Sarah is a wonderful woman of God as well. And um, you are blessed with a great, great leadership here at this church. Um, and Sarah, I consider myself a little brother because she is so much older than me. It's not... <laughs> Cut that out for us, okay? Uh, uh, looking forward to sharing the word today. And my son, who came to a service uh, a couple weeks ago at our church, he's seven years old, he said, Dad, you preached for like three hours. I said to him, no, you know, it was, it was like 35 minutes. He said, Dad, it felt like three hours. So I, I can't promise this morning um, that it won't feel like three hours, but I promise you I will not preach that long. I will not preach that long. At this point, Moses is 120 years old, and he finds himself in an interesting spot in the life of the nation of Israel. They have just gone through a time of wandering for years and years, waiting for God to take them to the promised land. And as they find themselves in the middle of this time, waiting to cross over to the Jordan, it's going to be known very soon that Moses will not be the one who will lead He's getting ready to pass the baton of leadership over to Joshua. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, there is this wonderful, beautiful, and haunting phrase that Moses shares with the nation of Israel as he is with them in the plains of Moab and as he has just reiterated to them the truth of God's word and his law, the old covenant. He says, I have laid before you life and death. Choose life. Choose life. Now, that seems like an obvious choice, doesn't it? How many of us this morning, if we had the option today as we leave, God said to you, your options today, live or die. I hope we'd all sign up to live. It seems like the obvious choice. But think with me through the rest of the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Scriptures. The nation of Israel, time and time again, find themselves not choosing life, but choosing, choosing death. Choosing disobedience to God and what he has revealed. And even the greatest leaders in the nation of Israel, the judges and the kings and those that God had put in place to rule over and to lead and direct, time and time again, they lead the people to idolatry. And time and time again, death. Life and death, the options seem obvious which to choose, but it's not that easy all the time, is it? Think of us even in our evening news feeds. How many of you like to watch the NBC Nightly News? I love to watch that whenever I get the chance. I remember a couple weeks ago, Lester Holt, who I saw walking around in the city recently, he has a dog about this big, you know, he's walking around with his dog. You know, you watch the evening news and the first 25, 6, 7 minutes 
It's death that's on the news, isn't it? It's what tragedy has just happened. What worry has just happened. What flu is taking over a region, right? Or even for us this last week as we think about the tragedy that just happened in Florida. And we're contemplating the loss of life and the pain and the death. It's sad. And some of us in our own lives, even very recently, know what it's like to experience loss like this. We recognize this loss. And while it's easy for us to point the finger out there on the world and say, ah, see why our death reigns, see where hatred is uh, uh, so popular and, and, and loved, it's hard for us to turn around and point the fingers at ourselves and recognize the day-in choices that we as well take and make where we choose death and hatred and do not choose life and love like God calls us. We need help. Think back just in these last few days in your own mind. How many of you this last week had an attitude with somebody that was filled with anger? Or perhaps you saw somebody at work and it was jealousy based upon their position and what they make as a result. Or perhaps we saw someone else and in our mind we started to play out the lustful thoughts of what it would be like to be with them. And while we are not wielding guns and knives, most of us, in everyday acts like that, in our heart, we choose death. We choose to take instead to give. And so this morning, as we're continuing in this series that Bill has been sharing, and I've been listening to these sermons online, how do I know? We find ourselves in 1 John chapter 3 with a challenge before us, a sobering one. That if this series is all about how do I know whether or not I'm a follower of God and how do I know whether or not I'm of God and of Christ and, and, and obeying Him, that as we come to texts like the one this morning, uh, assurance is something that's hard to find. Because all of us more easily choose, and we'll talk about it, the way of Cain than we do the way of Jesus in our life. And so this morning we're going to diagnose the problem a little bit in 1 John chapter 3 beginning in verse 11. I believe the page number will come up here in a second. We're going to see this morning two portraits. We're going to see a portrait, a, a, a painting of the way of Cain. What does it look like when we choose to follow his example and choose to take life and choose death and then juxtapose to it right next to it, we're going to see a portrait of Jesus. And what does it look like to give life, to show love instead of to take? Because the truth this morning is, if you're a follower of Jesus, or if you've had questions about what it means to follow Jesus, then following the way of Cain is not an option for us. And even though we may be more, uh, how do I say it, polite and neat and tied up in how we do so, God desires to get at our heart. And God desires from the inside out to know him and to love him and to be changed by him. So once again, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. I love the various questions that you've already been going through. You know, questions like, what do you love? And, and what, how do you look at your sin? I think these are wonderful test questions for us as we think about how whether or not you know you're a follower of Christ. Or even last week, how do you know that you are God's child? A child is going to live and act this different way. But today, our question is the following. Do you take or give life? Simple. Are you a taker or a giver? Another way to say it, do you choose death in your everyday acts or do you choose life? And like 
God laid out through the Moses years ago, I believe God has laid out for us this morning. Choose life. Choose life. So the first portrait. Uh, you'll see the first portrait here, the portrait of Cain. It's verses 11 through 15. 11 through 15. We want to look at that together to start this morning. I want to go verse by verse here in this first section because I think there's just uh, so much for us to garner from. Look at verse 11, the portrait of Cain. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. Everybody just look up for a second. Look around. These are your one another's. First John is really, a, much of its emphasis is on how people in the community of faith love each other and how we treat each other. Now, love is one of these most often misused words in our vocabulary. We could say, I love my wife, and man, I love chocolate peanut butter cups, you know? Uh, we just came off of Valentine's Day. How many of you had a good Valentine's? How many of you remembered? I had a good one. I got, I got my wife chocolate. I got her flowers, okay? But I wanted to be known on record here at LifeSpring Community Church that my wife asked me out to a Valentine's Day banquet our first year of college together. She made a wonderful choice. It's been... <laughs> She'll be in the second service. You could let her know that I thought that. Um, and I remember when we were dating early on, she would say to me, I love you, I love you. And I had just learned probably in this course when we were going through First John about how love is not just an emotion, you know, love is a choice. And so in all my Bible college, you know, bravado and, and pride, I said to her, when I tell you I love you, it'll be a choice that I make till the day you die. I did this to her. And so we dated four years. She's a patient woman. Never told her I loved her for four years. I know. It sounds bad when you say it out loud. Um, cut this out as well, please. And when I proposed to her at the top of the Empire State Building and got on my knee, now that was good. I said, I love you, and I've been saying it every day since. But love is a choice, isn't it? We know this. And so when the text reminds us and calls us to love each other, we understand that it's an intentional choice to show interest in and care and concern for the other. And the Bible text here is reminding us that it has to start within the people of God, that it starts with the one another's around us. Yes, even those ones that are hard to love. I know they all go to the second service, so don't worry. You're all fine. But he says in verse 12 then, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brother's were were righteous. The way of Cain. Jealousy. Taking root. It's a story from the Old Testament. If you're not familiar, it's one of the first ones we see written down in the pages of Scripture. It's the progeny of Adam and Eve. Those who walked closely with God. And yet the first murderer pops on the scene right away. Isn't this interesting? The first three chapters of the book of the Bible are dedicated to life. And right away, in chapter 4, death makes its appearance. Verse 6 of chapter 4 of Genesis, just a few verses. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face so downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door it desires to have you but you must 
rule it. Sin is crouching at the door. The temptation to take life, Cain, it's real. And this phrase in Hebrew is supposed to uh, evoke thoughts of like a wild animal just ready to pounce. This is how jealousy works its way out, isn't it? It's walking by your side, this wild beast behind every corner. Now, now, I got to confess, if you haven't figured it out already, I'm city folk, okay? I don't do wild animals, you know? You know, I, I don't mind a rat this big as I'm waiting on the subway platform. That's, that's entertaining to me, you know? But wild animals? I remember when my dad would send us away to college and uh, would send us away to camp in the summer. He'd say, be careful when you go in the woods at night. Like, why, Dad? You, know? you don't know what's out there. If you grew up in the city, you know, this is the talk, you know. Put me in the middle of a city block at 2 in the morning, you know, walking by myself. I'm fine, you know. And I remember we were dating my wife, and uh, we had, she is from upstate, uh, actually upstate in Massachusetts area. And she's country, man. She, she grew up in the country. And so we're up there one day, and we're with her family, and we had come from a church service, and we're going back to the house. And she says, oh, my dad wants us to go outside and walk Skippy. Their beautiful little collie that they had. Well, collie, big collie. And so we get to the house, and I mean, they're in the middle of the woods, in a mountain. I mean, they look, it's probably exaggerating it in my mind, but this is how intimidating it is, okay? There's like not a lot of lights anywhere. You know, we turn off the light on the car, and I can't see my hand, you know? And my wife looks at me. Well, she wasn't my wife yet, okay? I'm only like 19, she's 20, and she's saying, Mike, can you go outside and unhook Skippy, take him for a walk? And I looked at her, and I said, this is going to make or break our relationship. <laughs> I looked at her, and I said, babe, didn't call her, didn't say I loved her. That came a couple years later. Smart. I said, babe, there's no way I'm going out there. And back then, I mean, I was 6'6", I had hair, I was in better shape. I mean, it was a good, it was a good era for me, and I, I still told her, I ain't going out there when your dad comes home. And I, I'll never forget, she looked at me and with a disappointing grin just realized, this is my choice for life, I guess. <laughs> but it's a real scary thought, isn't it? Of something crouching there, ready to pounce. And the idea here in the text and the idea for us as we think about Cain in 1 John is this idea that, that it's something that is ready to destroy him. And he even has a heads up about it. God said, be careful. It wants to control you. You must overcome it. And yet Cain does what? Takes the opportunity, allows this beast of jealousy to overwhelm him, and he kills his brother Abel. So back to 1 John. <laughs> For you and I, to not be mindful of this portrait of death is to be ignorant to the power of the world and the flesh and the devil that desire to see us choose death every day. And in 1 John, this rival group with those that are the true followers of him within the faith there are asking the people to fall away from God in this way. And they have left them. They have deserted them because of their beliefs about Jesus and what it means that he is the Messiah. 
because of their lack of desire to be obedient, to follow him in their everyday life, these, this group of people have said, in essence, you are dead to us. And the warning for those who are listening is to be careful, to watch out. He says, this is the way of the world. Look at verses 13 and 14 of 1 John. It says, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. And everyone who does not love remains in, remains in death. He's talking about the world as this, this human uh, rebellion against God. He's talking about the world as a system in opposition to the ways of God. He's saying, if you follow me, if you love me, if you know what it's like to be a true disciple of me, then the things of this world will be in opposition. So why choose death? It's the way of the world. Why choose to take? So this is always the time in the sermon where you have to make sure you, you, you stop for a second. Because most people, and I know myself as well, you come to a sermon and you think, oh man, I hope I could just make it through today without like being too convicted. You know? Do you ever get this way? And it's like, okay, I think I'm good. Haven't killed anybody lately. I'm hoping that's true for most of us. Looking at this crowd, I'm not sure. You know. And it's in the next verse where the author brings it right home. Look what he says in verse 15. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Whoa, 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 whoa. John, this just got serious. <laughs> Anyone who has ever had some hatred makes them a murderer and, and life is absent from them? It reminds us of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, doesn't it? You have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. This is Jesus speaking. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment again. Anyone who says to his brothers or sister, Racha, which is a curse, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fires of hell. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Listen to what John is saying to his listeners that you and I are more subtle in our murderous ways. That you and I are more discreet in how we choose to hate and to take life and death. That it is practiced in everyday acts of dismissal and jealousy and hatred and gossip and lust. That when you and I in these manicured and polite ways in our heart pursue these things. Cain is our example. He's an archetype of our life. And it's self-destructive. It destroys others and it destroys ourselves. I heard a famous preacher say once uh, uh, that, that hating people, it's, it's like burning down your own house to kill a rat. I love that illustration. It's, if you have a hatred and a jealousy or an anger towards someone else, it's, it's destroying yourself more than it's destroying that little rat in the house. Second time I've referenced rats today, you could tell I see them a lot. Augustine says thousands of years ago, 
Whoever hates is a murderer. You may not have prepared any poison or committed a crime. You have only hated. In doing so, you have killed yourself first of all. Now, if the message ends here, we should walk out with our heads down. This is a cry for mercy at this point, isn't it? This is a cry for all of us to recognize that in certain ways and in certain seasons and with certain individuals to varying degrees, we fall along this spectrum of Cain-like attitudes. And it's a cry for mercy. God, can you help us? And that's where the text goes on. Look with me in verse 16. And I love where the word of God starts here. You would think if this was positive self-help kind of teaching, and it would be, okay, now try harder to be gooder. Bad grammar, but a good theme, right? You know, do better. You could do it. Believe in yourself. You have it within you, you know? But look what the text says. Verse 16. As we see now the transition to Jesus, a portrait of life. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for, for us. L listen to the words of the author here. He's saying this is how we know how to love. Is that how he's saying? No, he's saying this is how we see love in person. How we see love demonstrated. It's in Jesus. And not in the fact that he was just a great teacher, which he was, but in the fact that he has done what? Laid down his life for us. Jesus in his sacrifice is an example and it is the uh, personification. It is the in-flesh demonstration of love and I'm sure Bill has been referencing this. This is an important theme in 1 John. The, the heretics are saying, the, the secessionists are saying Jesus didn't have to come in the flesh for it to matter at all. Just believe the right things and in an enlightened sense you'll be okay with God. And, and the author is railing against this theme saying it's important to believe that Jesus came in the flesh and literally lived and died as the Messiah for us. And it's to that example now that he points and says look at the sacrifice of Jesus. The only way to defeat these Cain-like tendencies that we have is to be so consumed by and in love with the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That you and I must spend much more time beholding who Jesus is and what he has done if we hope to be changed in how we live. You are what you behold. What you behold for a long enough time enables you to become someone, become something. And, and, and this is obvious to illustrate. Think of it in your own life, in your own profession, you know. You've spent years honing a craft, and whatever it looks like to behold and to take note of and to observe the issues and challenges of your craft, it has enabled you to become someone who naturally does those things that you're, are needed to be successful. For, for musicians, it takes time to behold and to think about and to study the musical notes and to work on your voice and your inflection in order to easily come up here and play and, and sing and, and communicate. And the idea here is the same. It starts in this text. That you and I are to first observe the beautiful, unbelievable, sacrificing love 
of God if you and I are to be transformed to pursue the portrait of Jesus, to give life and not to take, to give life and not to take. There's an apocryphal story of a medieval monk, and he made the announcement one Sunday. He said, come back next Sunday. The message is going to be about the love of Christ. And so the people in the local community in this small little chapel all gathered together the following Sunday night. It was around 8, 9 at night. And everybody gathered in, and it's quiet, and there's nothing there. And then all of a sudden, once the service starts, this medieval monk walks in the back with a candle. And he walks to the front of the chapel, and there on the wall is a crucifix. And he takes the candle and he puts it to the crown of thorns. Doesn't say a word. He puts it to the hands and the feet. He puts it to the side of Jesus. And he blows out the candle and he leaves. This is the portrait of love. This is what you and I are to never tire of looking at and pondering. Because if we are to be changed and to truly be convinced from the inside out that we know the Lord and are following him, we must be consumed with his sacrifice and love and generosity on our behalf and recognize our need to come back to him in dependence all the time. And look what it says in verse 17 and 18 then. After we have done so in our life, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but in actions and in truth. In another translation, it talks about you cannot close your heart towards the needs of others after you have meditated on the love of God in Christ. Do you hear that this morning? That you and I are to not have closed hearts. That it's a sacrificial love we're to follow. And it's a generous, open-hearted love that we're to demonstrate to others. You know, many of us have know this gospel message so well. And, and we'd love at any opportunity to share it in word. But what does the author challenge us here to do? To love in deed and in truth. You see a need. Position yourself to help. That's simple application today. To follow the way of Jesus after we have been transformed by the work of God on the cross for us. God calls us to see a need and put ourselves in a position to meet it. And notice something that happens in this text, and I love it. It's a, I believe it's put here to make sure uh, we, we are, uh, don't go off just theologizing as the people of God. Look at this movement. I want to show you, and I'm I'm not huge on showing all these grammatical things, but I think it's important. Look at verse 16. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, okay, English teachers, singular or plural? Plural. Very good. One English teacher here today. Excellent job. Okay. I told you I'm not that good at English anyway. All of us have a concern for humanity. In fact, the news always does too, doesn't it? You know, change the world, save the world. Christians, we want to be part of large missions programs. You know, we want to be able to give our funds to support missionaries around the globe. You know, everybody has, you know, big B and S, you know, brothers and sisters and general world out there in our mind. But notice what the next verse does. 
If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister, help me out, singular, it's almost as if the author hones it in. I'm going to ask you to look up one more time, look around. Please do it. Just look, okay. Brother, sister. The, the application is very simple. For you and I to begin to practice the way of Jesus and to follow his portrait, we're to open our eyes and see who are those around us that God has brought a need before us that we could position ourselves to come and to help. And this is a lifelong disposition and orientation to others and their needs. Have you ever met somebody like this? Somebody that when you're around them, their enthusiasm and excitement to serve is contagious. I have a friend of mine, his name is Tom Basil, and you guys know him here in this church. So how many of you came to Staten Island to be a part of the Hurricane Sandy relief efforts uh, a few years ago? Many of you were. I, we had a cooks there. Duncan was wonderful, swinging a hammer, I remember. And my friend Tom led that, that expedition. Five years ago, uh, when, when Sandy hit, Tom was uh, the leader of the Bowery Mission, one of the most historic, important homeless missions in New York City, and he lost that position. And he was out without a job. And in October of that year, of 2012, the Hurricane Sandy hit. And the day of the hurricane, when the rains stopped and the water started rising just a few blocks from my own house where I live now, Tom said, I'm going down there. And I'm thinking, Tom, you could do what you want. I'm staying in my home. I found out the story later on. He found out somebody in the neighborhood lost their dog. And he waded up into his waist for hours with his daughter looking for this person's dog. Now, for those of you that went on the trip then, you remember, he then launched that into a ministry for the next five years, bringing over 300 different teens to come to Staten Island in that area to bring relief efforts, to rebuild homes, and to do much more than finding dogs. And through that, he got to share what it means to be a person that lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the portrait of Jesus as their example every day, day in and day out. Now, God doesn't call all of us to wade in waist-deep water to demonstrate these acts. Remember, brother, sister. I want to introduce a theme, and I'm hoping in your small groups this week that you'll be able to think this through what this looks like. But I call it this idea of these circles of influence. It's a way that I always try to contextualize and apply the Word of God so that I don't get just too concerned and consumed with the problems across the world and not recognize that God has put me in a position to meet those right near me. I want you to think first with those right in your immediate family. You know, God says to love your neighbor. Well, if you're married, before you get out of bed this morning, or tomorrow morning, look at your wife or husband and say, good morning, neighbor. Okay? I know I'm, I'm very good at building up marriages, as you can tell. That's the first place where God calls us to see a need and to respond. And then the next circle of influence, you know, outside of that, you know, where, where is my workplace? Or perhaps if you're in school, the students that I'm a part of or the team that I'm on, you know, who are these men and these women that God has called me to engage with and interact with in a pop, very, very applicable way to see a need and respond based upon my love for Christ and what he's done for me? And then expand it out from there and you can fill it out what it looks like for you. I, you know, I just, I'm a simple person. I like circles. Put my family, 
put my workplace, put my community. How has God called LifeSpring Community Church to reach Canandaigua in the surrounding area in the coming days and years? And how has God placed you in a unique relationship in this community to be a part of that? And then we could start breaking it out from there, you know, New York City and the world and, uh, you know, all these things are so wonderful and ethical. That's why uh, our missions programs have to be comprehensive, but don't worry too much out there until God has put in your heart where the person next to you is there for you to minister and to need, to literally wade in the waters, to see their need and respond out of a love for Christ. Will you choose Christ? Will you choose life instead of death? As we close, I want to look as well. I was supposed to preach verses 19 to 24 as well, but I'm, I know, I'm not going to go for another half hour. I told my son Isaiah I wouldn't do that to you. But as you look at it, the rest of this text this week, it's a, it's a great reminder to us that, that, God, um, that God sees our hearts. Uh, you know, the promise is that we are not to be overcome by our lack of ability to live up to the standard God has called us to. We're not to be overcome by it. We're to feel guilt for it and confess it. But look what it says in verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and have set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. Isn't that an encouragement? <laughs> Later on it talks about it then that this is the command to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to love one another, that this is the core of what it means to know and follow him as a disciple. To know the gospel and to respond to the truth of Jesus and to offer that to others. And so this morning, you know, God knows your heart better than you do. And we're not to condemn ourselves based upon how good we're doing or not in this, but we are to feel the guilt that he's challenging us to confess and ask ourselves every day, will I take or give life? Will I take life in everyday acts of jealousy and anger and lust? Or will I practice to give life in everyday acts of sacrifice and generosity out of an open heart to meet the needs of others? God has set before us life and death. Choose life. Choose life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, and it is powerful and is sharp because you are found within its pages that we are to engage with you as we hear from your word. And God, I thank you, Lord, for this church, and I thank you, Lord, for its mission. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for its calling to be the light and hope of the gospel in this community to the ends of the earth. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that it might be true of everybody in here, starting with the preacher, starting with myself, starting with Bill and Sarah and the elders and, and the leaders and the stewards and the music, and Chris and others, Lord, that, that we might all seek the way of Jesus in how we treat others, not the way of Cain. And so this morning, Lord, we start off in confession and ask you, God, to forgive us when we fall so far short. But we're thankful, Lord, as it says earlier in 1 John, that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, help us this week to gaze upon the beauty of the cross and the work of Jesus afresh in our life. May we never consider that old news that is just part of something we decided in a prayer service years ago. Lord, may that be the all-consuming love of our life, the work and love and sacrifice of Jesus. And God, help us this week 
out of a response to the great generosity that you have shown us through your Son to have eyes to see the needs of those around us and to place ourselves in a position, whether through material ways, whether through a conversation or a prayer, whether it is through sacrificing of our time and our energy, whatever it might be, Lord, help us to choose to give life this week. And Lord, when we fall short, we come to you and ask you to help us to do it and to remember. And so, Lord, I commit this congregation to you, Lord, in these coming days. Lord, before we get out of bed every morning, God, may we choose the way of Jesus and root out in all of our lives those Cain-like tendencies. We pray all these things in the name of Christ, by the power of your spirit. Amen.